You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Health and wellness are always a concern, especially lately with news of the novel coronavirus coming at us from all sides. There are ways to help keep your body in peak condition. Perk up your colon with a coffee enema. Balance your energies into the ideal frequency with special stickers made from material used by NASA. Or keep your lady parts tip-top by giving them a good steam cleaning. Be sure to remove your jade egg first. If you're really serious about your health, you can spend the equivalent of 800 hours of minimum wage for a weekend retreat of smoothies, workshops, and hoping to get a glimpse of your celebrity host, who already did her five minutes and left. All sales final, no refunds. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired, wherever you get your podcasts. Health spas of dubious quality is the topic voted on most recently by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And a hearty welcome to our newest members, Christy Platypus, Ruth Ann, Kate, Taylor, Jennifer, and the best retweeter a podcast could have, Eric, who joined during our recent special offer. There will be a second topic poll in March, so if you're interested in guiding the course of the podcast, head on over there and join now. According to the Global Wellness Institute, the health and wellness industry worldwide is worth $4.2 trillion. Much of that is taken in by the thousands of spas. They're hip, they're trendy, they're thousands of years old. Spas were originally hot springs the use of which goes all the way back to prehistory. Imagine how amazing it must have been as a primitive man to find a stream or a pool of water that was hot, without you having to haul it back to camp in a bowl that took days to make, only to find that the fire has gone out because the guy whose job it was to keep it going had just been mauled by a cave bear. The earliest spas centered on these natural hot springs. No one knows exactly where the word spa comes from, but there are two main theories. One is that it comes from the Belgian town of Spa, with a capital S, known since Roman times for its baths. The other theory, a particularly clingy one, is that spa is an acronym for the Latin phrase salus per aquia, or health from water. However, that is almost certainly crap, since pronounceable acronyms to shorten phrases are the origins of modern words, not ancient ones. See also the history of the F-word, which does not mean for unlawful carnal knowledge or fornicating under command of the king. Bonus fact, an acronym that can be pronounced like SCUBA is an acronym, but short forms like FBI that don't form pronounceable words are initialisms. If a word existed and someone later makes up an acronym that works for it, that would be a backronym. Indigenous people around the world have used hot springs for medicinal and spiritual practices. 
The Greeks were known for bathing in hot springs and mineral waters, and the Romans were famously into their baths, not only as a place for getting clean, assuming you were one of the first people in the shared, unfiltered water that day, but also for socializing. Their tradition spread to the east and transformed into the Middle Eastern hammam, known more casually as a Turkish bath, though bathing began to fall out of fashion with the fall of the Roman Empire. The less said about the state of Western medicine and the sentiments toward personal hygiene in the medieval period, the better. It's not as bad as most of us assume, but it definitely wasn't great. From the 16th century, what had been at one time holy sites of pilgrimage, many associated with healing, were adapted by Protestant reformers to fit their new model of faith. In Denmark, for example, belief in holy springs was initially abolished by royal decree in 1570. But when this was clearly being ignored, the church turned instead to emphasizing the healing power of the spring through the grace of God, not some saint as the Catholics would have held, or some natural force inherent to the spring. The growth in the 17th and 18th centuries of these spa towns, particularly in Protestant Germany and England, comes from this practice. Time went on, indoor plumbing was going like gangbusters, and bathing moved from an occasional indulgence or a medical treatment to regular old keeping clean. The special aspect of it returned to the springs and natural waterways where it had started, and those who felt under the weather, and had the money, would go to take the waters, as they called it. By the 19th century, European cure towns like Carlsbad and Baden-Baden were lavish destinations for the wealthy and the top end of the rising middle class. According to David Clay Large in his book The Grand Spas of Central Europe, these great spa towns were the equivalent of today's major medical centers, rehab retreats, golf resorts, conference complexes, fashion shows, music festivals, and sexual hideaways all rolled into one. There were people for whom the baths were medicine, but not by choice. Hydrotherapy, as it was termed, was key to many doctors' approaches for treating the mentally ill, especially women with their hysteria. Oh, how hysterical women are. Hysteria, of course, being the ancient Greek belief that the uterus moved freely about the body, like a fish in a tank, and if it got somewhere it wasn't supposed to be, it would cause problems. These problems came in the form of emotions, speaking up for oneself, and anything else that annoyed or inconvenienced your husband or father. Every single spa, doctor, and curative in today's episode had a subtopic for female complaints, though they were usually complaints about females, so I left them out lest they take over the topic. Some women and men had genuine mental health issues. Today we use talk therapy and medication for many of them. In the not-too-distant past, patients might be dunked repeatedly in ice baths, made to stay in scalding hot tubs for hours, or, in one practice that I lack the imagination to come up with, put in what was essentially a casket with air holes and submerged underwater. Apart from their trendy nature, health spas of the era had a redeeming feature. They were at least as good as most of the medicine at the time. Warm water soothed arthritis in a time before anti-inflammatory drugs. Getting away from the coal smoke of the city eased sufferers of respiratory problems. And a focus on healthy, balanced, or plant-based eating was all part of the experience and could help with digestive complaints. Large rites, but often as not, 
Purists also went to play, to be entertained, and to socialize. In their heyday, the Grand Spas were hotbeds of cultural creativity, true meccas of the arts. High-level politics were another Grand Spa specialty, with statesmen descending on the Cure Towns to negotiate treaties, craft alliances, and plan wars. In the States, the best-known health retreat was built in an area with no natural resources to spin as curatives. What it did have was a doctor and shrewd businessman who was passionately convinced of the importance of bowel health and the deleterious effects of self-love. The inventor of cornflakes, John Harvey Kellogg and his Battle Creek Sanitarium. Sanitarium at the time meant a generally restful place to improve one's health, or specifically an isolated place for the treatment of tuberculosis. Kellogg believed in what he called biologic living for the benefit of body, mind, and soul. Much of biologic living stemmed from his faith as a Seventh-day Adventist, a Christian subset that, among other things, keeps kosher and eschews caffeine, alcohol, tattoos, and premarital sex. Dr. Kellogg and his brother Will, who would eventually split from him, add sugar to cornflakes, and found Kellogg's breakfast cereal, grew the Battle Creek Sanitarium with its state-of-the-art medical center, spa, and grand hotel into a national holistic wellness destination. The Battle Creek San was a bulwark of health, with as much importance placed on cleanliness as on the vegetarian meals and exercise programs. The marble floors, for example, five acres worth in total, were lauded in pamphlets saying, germs and vermin can never find a lodging. Admirers and patients included several U.S. presidents, inventor Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Amelia Earhart, and Sojourner Truth. Kellogg practiced much of what he preached. He was a vegetarian before the word was widely known, and was so strongly a believer in the harmful effects of sexual activity that his four-decade-long marriage was reportedly completely celibate. If you were just there for a traditional health spa experience, there were baths at the Sam. 46 different kinds, in fact, including the continuous bath, which was like a regular bath, except it could last, as Kellogg's wrote, for hours, days, weeks, or months, as the case may require, though patients were apparently allowed to get out to use the bathroom. Like other physicians of his day, Kellogg experimented with the therapeutic effects of artificial light. Light therapy has shown promise in treating depression and things like seasonal affective disorder, but Kellogg promoted light therapy as an almost universal cure-all and built what he called the world's first electric light bath. Like a primitive tanning bed, this healthy light bath was a wooden cabinet lined with light bulbs in which the patient would sit or lie down, to be cured of, if Kellogg was right, diabetes, insomnia, gangrene, syphilis, and more. He wasn't right, in case I needed to say that. Kellogg's interest in the therapeutic powers of electricity didn't end with the lights. He administered sinusoidal current to patient's skin with a device he cobbled together from telephone parts. He claimed the shocks were painless. While electrical stimulation also has some legitimate uses, Kellogg again thought it would cure anything, including lead poisoning, tuberculosis, obesity, and, if applied directly to the patient's eyeballs, various vision problems. Kellogg designed numerous contraptions for exercise and therapeutic purposes, 
though not without a certain number of failures. Take, for example, the vibrating chair. Put aside thoughts of a lazy boy recliner with three-speed massage, this was a plain wooden chair that shook up to 60 times a second, with the apparent goal of stimulating the bowels. It was an appropriate set piece alongside machines designed to beat, slap, pound, and flog guests to stimulate their circulation. Speaking of things that vibrate, Kellogg fought masturbation as fervently as he fought meat-eating, drink, and other foes of the colon. To break boys of the habit, Kellogg suggested tying their hands, wrapping up the offending organ in bandages, or putting a cage over it, like a ridiculous one-man show of the man in the iron mask. It's harder to make light of what he prescribed for girls. Clitoridectomy, either surgical or by the application of pure carbolic acid. As anyone who watched the underappreciated movie The Road to Wellville could attest, Kellogg was an enthusiastic devotee of the enema. More people need washing out than any other remedy, he wrote. An entire floor of every building on the sanitarium campus, usually the basement, was earmarked solely for lower gastrointestinal studies and treatments, i.e. enemas. A bog-standard enema would involve a pint or two of liquid. Kellogg backed patients up to a special machine capable of pumping 15 quarts of water a minute into the patient's bowels. Or, if he was feeling festive, yogurt. Only half of that was in the form of a colonic. You had to eat the other half. Maybe it worked better if they met in the middle, I don't know. The next version of the machine dispensed 15 gallons of water at a time. While the state of a person's bowels and the presence of certain bacteria in fecal matter can indicate the person's state of health, Kellogg took things a little too far. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
Speaking of people's firmly held individual beliefs, we got two new reviews recently, one glowing, the other not so much. I'm going to save the good one for next week. The other reviewer has unsubscribed because I, quote, constantly fails to follow normal podcasting conventions, specifically about where reviews, social media shoutouts, and calls to action should go. Apparently, though this person says they've listened to podcasts the entire time they've existed, they've never heard a mid-roll spot before. And they are, of course, entitled to their opinion. But it irks me that their rant is sitting there at the top of the reviews. If you've ever thought about leaving a positive review for the show, could you take a moment and do it soon? I'd love to have my brainiacs drive that review off the first page and restore the show's five-star rating. Please don't address the other reviewer specifically. They are entitled to their opinion. Even if they did refer to the Brainiacs break room where I post extra facts and you can share yours too as a random Facebook group. It's not random. Just this week, Donald posted, I was at a local bar watching the Daytona 500. There's a piano here, so I checked. The car's pitch is C-sharp below middle C. And Adam shared a video on the origins of the F-word. Everyone's welcome over at facebook.com slash groups, plural, slash Brainiac Breakroom. Speaking of Facebook, thanks to the listeners who recently left recommendations. Neville said, the show will add color to your life. Jennifer said it's made her hour-plus commute bearable. And someone calling themselves Campbell Soup even noticed that I submitted a lateral thinking puzzle to the great podcast Futility Closet. You can reach me online at Facebook and Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts and Twitter at BrainOnFactsPod. And I don't mind you sliding into my DMs as long as you've got something fascinating to say when you do. When the stock market crashed in 1929, too few people could afford the conspicuous consumption of a stay at the Battle Creek Sand. The sand limped along until 1941, two years before Kellogg's death, when it was sold to the U.S. military and became the Percy Jones Army Hospital. Today, the remaining 21 buildings exist as a federal complex. Only the main building has been preserved from modernization and added to the National Registry of Historic Places. Around the world, the devastation of two world wars and the rise of modern medicine took much of the wind out of the sails of the great spa cities. People began to see hot springs and mineral baths as outdated and old-timey, and their attendance plummeted. While Kellogg had his MD and many of his treatments were based in scientific, albeit flawed, thought, many of the spas hinged on the appeal to ancient wisdom fallacy. Don't get me wrong, I have nothing against natural medicine. That's where modern medicine started. What I'm not down for is holding natural remedies above science because nature must be intrinsically superior or because it's been around longer. I'll let comedian Dara O'Brien sum it up for me. It's nonsense. And they'll have this all the time with medical stuff on the television. You'll have a doctor on and they'll talk to the doctor. And then the doctor will be talking about something with all the benefit of research and medical evidence. And they'll turn away from the doctor in the name of balance and turn to some quack witch doctor on the other side of the studio. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you're into homeopathy. It's water! How often does it need to be said? Jesus, homeopaths get on my nerves with the old, well, science doesn't know everything. Well, science knows it doesn't know everything, otherwise it'd stop. But it... <laughs> but as well as that, you know, how would they bother? 
But as well, just because science doesn't know everything doesn't mean you can fill in the gaps with whatever fairy tale most appeals to you. I'm sorry, herbal medicine, no herbal medicine has been around for thousands of years. Indeed it has, and then we tested it all, and the stuff that worked became medicine. <laughs> and the rest of it is just a nice bowl of soup and some potpourri, so knock yourself out. The other snag with natural remedies, the snake in the wheatgrass, is how it leaves people wide open to snake oil salesmen. It's such a strange expression when you stop and think on it, snake oil. They don't look very fatty, snakes, but the phrase does in fact refer to a lipid extracted from a legless reptile. Actual snake oil came to America in the latter half of the 19th century with Chinese immigrants. These men, often signed to multi-year labor contracts for wages far below their white counterparts, slaved away on the transcontinental railroad. They used an omega-3 rich oil extracted from Chinese water snakes to treat inflammation in their joints at the end of 12 and 16 hour long days. The first snake oil salesman was a cowboy turned showman, Clark Stanley, the rattlesnake king. At the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, Stanley, who claimed to have studied with a Hopi medicine man, put on a show-stopping demonstration. Joe Schwartz, the director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society, wrote about the scene. Stanley reached into a sack, plucked out a snake, slid it open, and plunged it into boiling water. When the fat rose to the top, he skimmed it off and used it on the spot to create Stanley's snake oil, a liniment that was immediately snapped up by the throng that had gathered to watch. Stanley's bottles said snake oil on the label, but like his backstory, that was also a lie. It was proved later that his products didn't contain oil from any kind of snake, Chinese water snake, rattlesnake, or otherwise. After seizing a shipment of Stanley's snake oil in 1917, federal investigators found it contained mineral oil, rendered beef fat, red pepper, and turpentine. But at the time, it was a hit. And with success comes imitators. Other fraudsters, scammers, and confidence men set out across the West in traveling shows or ran ads in big city newspapers, selling bottles of dubious substances with huge promises of curative powers to unsuspecting people. The public eventually caught on, and the misappropriated Chinese folk remedy became symbolic of fraud. It's been part of our lexicon since at least 1927, when the first written use appeared in Stephen Vincent Bennett's epic poem, John Brown's Body, in the lines, Crooked creatures of a thousand dubious trades, sellers of snake oil balm and lucky rings. So what happened to Stanley when he was found out? He was fined $20, about $420 today, for violating the Food and Drug Act and for misbranding his product by falsely and fraudulently representing it as a remedy for all pain. He paid the fine and didn't refute the charge. 25 years of selling beef drippings as medicine is a bold business strategy, but Stanley would have to tip his hat to a far more brazen huckster, the man the American Medical Association called the King of the Quacks, the prophetically named Curtis Howe Springer. He didn't create a product, he created an entire town, a town with no full-time vowels in its name, no less, the Mojave Desert Town of Zizix spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X. 
Springer was born in 1896 in Birmingham, Alabama. This is one of the few verifiable facts about his early life. He might have been a boxing instructor during World War I, or he might not. He could have preached against the scourge of alcohol for William Jennings Bryan, though we don't know for sure. He may or may not have attended college in Chicago and possibly worked at a school in Florida. Springer gave himself whatever advanced degrees he felt sounded best when he was out on the lecture circuit in the 30s, from an MD to a PhD. These degrees came from schools that didn't exist, like the National Academy, Westlake West Virginia College, and the most chutzpah displaying, the Springer School of Humanism. He tried to reach more people by moving to radio, but the first radio station at which he applied spotted him for a fraud and reported him to the AMA, who then issued an entire paper debunking all claims Springer had made of training or degrees of any sort, in the beautifully titled Nostrums and Quackery and Pseudomedicine. It didn't matter. Springer was Teflon before Teflon had been invented, and he went into radio anyway. His radio addresses were a wacky mix of religion, politics, and fake medicine. But have no fear, because whatever afflicted you, he could sell you a beverage that would cure it. You could be, in his words, internally, externally, and eternally clean. Things weren't taking root in the cities of the eastern half of the country the way he'd wanted, so he set his sights west, on an oasis-slash-swamp in the Mojave Desert. In 1944, Springer filed a mining claim on 12,800 acres of the Mojave, which contained a picturesque spring, known then as Soda Springs, surrounded by palm trees. The mining claim was a less expensive way to get access to and control over the plot of land. Springer had the right to mine for whatever he wanted and keep the proceed. The mining claim didn't bestow ownership of the property, but paltry details like that wouldn't stop Springer from developing it and even trying to sell parts of it. At no point did he plan to draw any resources up from the land, apart from money. Springer named it Zizix, so it would be the last word in health, which would at least be true alphabetically. The Mojave Desert of California is peppered with hot springs. Soda Springs is not one of them. These are details. Springer installed a bunch of heating pumps to fake it. He also built a hotel on the cheap to serve as a base of operations for the sale of over two dozen miracle cures that he claimed to have created. You could spend your hard-earned money on antediluvian tea, a laxative mixture of herbs and bark. The word antediluvian means before the great flood in the Bible, apparently suggesting it was a very ancient remedy. Not that the same plants grow in the American Southwest as grew in the Middle East thousands of years ago. Rehib, to cure dyspepsia. This might actually work, at least if your chief complaint were heartburn, because it was mostly baking soda. The Hollywood Pep Cocktail, a blend of, quote, concentrated vital food energy. Five Bucks says that it was a smoothie made of cheap vegetables and sugar. Mohair. Not the material spun from goat or rabbit wool. This likely paste of mud and salt was to be rubbed on the head while the user held their breath as long as they could. If you turned red in the face, that meant it was working. Next time you're in the bathroom, hold your breath until your lungs start to hurt and look in the mirror. Wow, mohair works so well... 
you don't even need to have it for it to work. Speaking of coincidences, you might also see results when using Zai crystals, dried salt from the oasis, because the instructions for their use told you to breathe deeply, get at least eight hours of uninterrupted sleep, exercise in moderation, think only clean and constructive thoughts, and drink one pint of water one hour before each meal. Of course you'd start to feel better. As with the modern wellness industry, good health was a simple mail order away, for those who could afford it. Springer's 1972 catalog contained Cosmo, suggested by an Indian for lovely skin, $85 in today's money for three doses. Something called FWO, Food Delightfully Pleasing to Women, 24 ounces would run you $142, though the same money would get you 40 ounces of Zyzex foot crystals. People paid. Springer kept Zyzex going for 30 years. Eventually, though, enough dissatisfied customers spoke loudly enough in the traditional American medium of the lawsuit that the government figured out Springer was a fraud who was flagrantly squatting on the land and selling bogus cures that were, at best, mud mixed with over-the-counter remedies. The feds threw Springer off the oasis in 1974 and dropped him in prison for a few months for false advertising. Zyzix was no more though its remains still sit in the desert to this day near the California State University Desert Studies Center. In a way, though, Springer did get his wish. While Zyzex isn't the last name in health and wellness, it is the last name that appears in Atlases of America. A 2006 movie about Zyzex starring Katherine Heigl became the lowest-grossing theatrical release of an American movie of all time. It ran in one Dallas, Texas theater for six days, grossing $30. Not 30,000, 30. Three tens. There is no record of what the, I'm assuming, four people who saw it thought. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. You might have recognized the products I listed at the top of the show as coming from Goop, the bizarrely named wellness company created by actress Gwyneth Paltrow. It is hard to leave her out of this episode, but Goop's shenanigans are current affairs, which is even more prickly to talk about than history. Like Zyzix, Goop is facing lawsuits for their deceptive business practices, with one claimant listing no less than 50 unsubstantiated medical claims from their website, though the company says these were, and I quote, honest disagreements. There are a lot of good people in the wellness industry, but there are also a lot of people who will take your money and tell you whatever you need to hear so that you'll give them more money. For a great look at how failings in the modern medical system allow companies like Goop to thrive, check out the video from MedLife Crisis that I'll have linked in the show notes and on the website. Remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And stop sticking weird things in your lady garden because an actress said so. You can always find the research sources and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.